0: We're going to have an exciting discussion, or at least an interesting discussion today. And I am excited to introduce our guest, my friend, Kevin Durkin. Thank you, Wesley. Good to be here. Kevin (laughs) has been part of our fellowship since before I was born. So I think I have a lot to learn from him. But he is a historian and an expert in architecture. He's founded multiple businesses, and he has lectured in places as far away as Yale and as near as the church that we're Sitting behind. Yes, all, so. all kinds of atmospheres. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Friendly and unfriendly. So yeah. yeah, we were Kevin and I were talking yesterday or a day before yesterday. It was yesterday. Yeah, it was yesterday. Yep. And you just come in from New York and we were talking about why the old societies, the old cultures of the pre modern world seemed more capable of holding together, whether that's families or communities, why they seemed to hold together more. And that kind of segued us into a conversation. And broadly speaking, we kind of s- started sketching around the, the basics of this. And, uh, and so we said, I asked him, will you join me tomorrow on the broadcast? here we are. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> so it's good to have you. Thank you. Good to be here. Amen. So what, what would we say? I guess if you look at the fragmentation that is occurring, not just in America... But in all Western culture, what what is the antecedent? Why is this happening on a level that historically we hadn't seen? And I would I submitted, and I do submit, that the culture as a whole was one in which people were closely connected to life's necessities. Prior to the modern age. Prior to the modern age. Yes. So we're saying prior to 1500 or so. Yes, Yes, sir. And really, it was a fading thing, wouldn't you say? Um, Even up until the Industrial Revolution, it's still somewhat of a reality. It
1: was, and I guess the early modern period uh, differentiated from the late modern period. When we say the industrial period, they were different. And I I think it really certainly gained its greatest momentum in that time. Some people say the modern period has ended in 1945 or so, but... Mm -hmm. Others say it's going on and others say we were in the postmodern era. But it was that early modern age, beginning with the Renaissance, and what happened? Yeah. What happened to world culture, you know, and and so
0: changed from
1: the medieval period is what we're talking about. Yes.
0: I and I guess it what 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 we were discussing at lunch was that they were in an environment of necessity. Yes. And The necessities of life, like shelter and food and survival itself, those necessities led them into cooperation. They fostered the social institutions that we have come to expect, like marriage, family, community, and so on and so forth. They weren't dispensable. They were essential. You
1: you had... uh you came to rely on them and, and, yeah. and that they weren't dispensable. They, if you didn't have them, you, there was a, you know, people essentially realized that without those things, the center does not hold yes. in life and in culture
0: and yeah. in society does not hold together right. So technology and specialization has in effect replaced the need for interdependent cooperative relationships. Yes. I mean,
1: and again, the late modern period, beginning about 1800, really with the Industrial Revolution that arose of of technology. And, you know, things happened in the before that, leading up to it, making it what made the Industrial Revolution possible was was a, a banking revolution really beginning in England in the 1690s, making the bond market and capital available to fuel industry. So. Moving on into the uh, 18th century in the late, the late 1700s and beginning in England, coming over to America was technology, was the Industrial Revolution. And and it was, uh, I think of your dad describing it as a tsunami of change Mm. that occurred and, and, and transformed all of culture and transformed all of society. And it's. It's spread around the world since then, but it really arose beginning in Britain, really the first banking, the Bank of England founded in 1694 or so uh, with William and Mary. And uh, after a defeat in a war with, with Holland, they they had to rebuild the the British Army and the British Navy. And uh, now also that's the modern period, into the modern period, you know, over a century and a half into the modern period. And, and what, is part of the early modern period is uh, world conquest colonization, uh, of the European countries. Mm. So we're really talking about European culture Mm. when we talk about all these things spreading around the world. So they're vying Britain, Portugal, Spain, Holland, France, they're vying for colonies around the world and power. And, um, in order to rebuild armies, in order to build navies, uh, what did a government rely on but taxation? Mm-hmm. Well, taxa- taxing the yeoman farmers of Britain didn't produce a whole lot of money. Mm-hmm. They needed something bigger, and they came up with the idea of the bond market mm-hmm. and selling bonds. Mm-hmm. And the Bank of England selling debt, basically. selling debt. Mm-hmm. Yes, and they sold bonds in one week. Uh, one week, I think, raised twelve million pounds, which mm-hmm. was a fortune at the time, mm-hmm. and rebuilt the British Navy to go back at it again and so we had a banking revolution before but you were saying the industrial age the industrial period what happened that's so i mean has so right up till today transformed culture and yeah. it's
0: and what are the roots of how I think, that happened i think people have a hard time contemplating how the very matrix of an economy can directly foster or inhibit Relationships like marriage, family, church. They don't we, we tend to see things in, in little boxes, we compartmentalize. Yes. And we don't understand that in that in that former age, before technology on the level that we know now, or even the level that we've known over the past hundred years, life was a struggle, much more of a struggle. Yes. And that struggle necessitated relationships. Well I think yeah very much but why don't we see that
1: <laughs> i i think of of what we've talked about often about myth mm. and how human nature uh, all sociologists anthropologists will say we live by myth muo mm. literally from the greek meaning that which is hidden to the eyes mm. and we follow in line with these things and we go along and, and we don't even know why we do we don't know that we are doing mm. in following a culture it's It's an amazing um, fault. It's an amazing shortcoming of human nature to do that. And how we don't question culture and how we got here, much less where is it taking us to, that we live by myth. And we're sitting here questioning myth right now, (laughs) which is a good thing to do. I suppose so. Yeah, really. And uh, that's the thing to talk about, because if ever we're going to find an alternative to these problems... And the creation of these problems we have to start you know opening our eyes to those things yeah
0: and would you say that the the myth that we're directly relating to here is the myth of progress or the myth of human development how how what is that myth what is the big myth is it called the apotheosis of it i mean because
1: i take it back to the garden Hmm. to the very beginning Hmm. The myth that we can see the end from the beginning, that in some way, we're divine Mm. in our natures. Without seeing the the limitation of nature, we can't see the end from the beginning. And so the industrial age, we invent things that uh, often have such unintended consequences Mm. and get us into unintended
0: problems
1: that we don't see in the beginning. Why is that? Does that make sense?
0: Yes, very much. Why? So wh- you, you say that <laughs> you're saying that the myth is the apotheosis of man, which apotheosis means the, the becoming of a god, the yes. process of becoming divine. And and so you're saying that really in the Garden of Eden we have this motif of, yes. of man aspiring to to a certain kind of knowledge, yes. In, in an attempt to ascend to the place of God,
1: yes. And and by the, you know, thousands of years later, we're seeing this come to a fruition. And today, we are more so than ever, um, a culmination, perhaps. Yes. Um, at some point, we know it's going to culminate. But I think it's all rooted back in that nature that we have and our inability to see that. I think things like black swans are part of that. Right. You know, the inability to see uh, the most common things that could happen, you know, things like black swans, like uh, COVID, right. <laughs> uh, the advent of the internet or the coming of World War One, The bubonic plague. The bubonic plague, or and, and also to see the unintended consequences of technology. Yeah. So all these things happen, and it's like we ride this tidal wave all the time, and with the, and often they're always framed in terms of very positive things, like uh, let's go into industrialism and, and labor and saying labor-saving devices. How wonderful. Like what fault could you find with labor-saving <laughs> devices? But they did just what you said, yeah. you know. Have labor-saving devices gotten us anywhere? Mm. Has it, Have they genuinely improved life? Now, you know, again... I'm not condemning all technology and, and invention. I'm not saying that at right. all. I'm—I probably wouldn't be alive without uh, something like antibiotics. Sure. You know, I can think one time I was sick. I wouldn't be alive. But what I'm saying is our inability to control them, right? And and to and to foresee where they're going to take us to and the problems that could arise from those yes. things. Yes. Yes.
0: And are we incorporating technology as a tool into a biblical worldview and narrative, or are we getting sucked into the bore tide of a myth? Yes. And I I think that that takes us to this this whole question. You you bring up labor-saving devices, and that's a a rubric that you really could categorize all technology under. Yes, very much. It's either diversionary and entertainment, or it's something that purports to be a labor-saving device and and we say well that is that that seems inherently safe to conserve labor and good but it takes us back to the garden because yes. in the garden when this apotheosis to use your word begins and man starts to compete to be his own god what happens is this curse comes into the world yes everything is is afflicted and affected by this process it's as if the curse is to disrupt and stop this speedy ascent that man is yes enticed to and in response to the curse he is told by the lord and from a biblical perspective he has said that you must earn your bread by the sweat of your brow there it is yeah
1: looked upon as a curse but really meant to be a way to bring us back into a relationship with god that was lost yeah So how could that do that? What are we saying? By the sweat of your brow, you will till the earth. But it was really meant to be a good thing. Right. And to keep us in a certain humility of mind, ultimately, where we could come back into relationship with God as God and not us. Yes. And uh, I think it's been a history of escape. Yeah. Down through the the millennia of trying to get away from that curse. Yeah. You know, uh, Cain. Uh, beginning right with Cain, and right. who, who was Cain? But well, we know he was—he was the first of a few things. He was—he was the first murderer. Right. But he founded the first city too, yeah. first city kingdom, and uh, it's just been a division right there at the beginning of time, yeah, into two kingdoms, yeah, two pathways, yeah, you know, and. We're seeing it today on such a, an incredibly developed scale, and we could go into all the. What do I mean by that? But the globalization that we see today, right, in in all of culture and all, you know, reaching every part of the world, right. All of its roots, I think, go back to that split in, that 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 fork in the road, yeah. And, and the question is, which one are we part of? Yeah. Which kingdom are we going to be part right. of? And what is the hope of ever? countering that other kingdom. Is there a hope to it? And I, you know, I, I think the church
0: is the only hope perhaps yeah. ever to do that. Yeah. You know, it's like when you look at the Garden of Eden prior to sin you see they're not having to, to labor. That is the ultimate labor-saving device was paradise. Yes. <laughs> they are merely receiving provision from a loving Father. Yes and they are tending the garden they are so there's some labor but something fundamentally changes when it says cursed be the ground because of you choked by thorns you will earn your bread by the sweat of your brow and it's as if god is saying you know you broke the relationship that brought this free provision of life into your experience and now you're going to have to participate through your time and energy in, in, in bringing back into the world the food, the fruit, the provision that your sin has limited, has made scarce. So labor becomes a direct response to sin. Entering into the growing of our food or the raising of our livestock or the life that, that gives life becomes a direct answer to the sinfulness that has made life so hard. It's it's saying we're not going to just starve here and we're not going to. And so, so in a real sense, it seems to me that modernity has been, has philosophically been saying to man, you can still get your bread. You don't have to sweat and trying to get him back to a, a mindset that sin has not cursed the world, that the world is not, the ground is not cursed because of sin. Instead, look how technology has redeemed us from the curse of sin.
1: Very much looking at technology to redeem us from the curse of sin, yes. And you know, I I look at, so agrarianism and agrarian life and and, uh, being rooted in an agrarian life and submitting to that curse, keeping our feet in the ground, so to speak. And I mean, I look at, at it, still today, that if we really do that, what is the only, one of the only things we can't control? What is it? Something very fundamental. Very the weather. Easy. The weather. Right. <laughs> of all things. I mean, it's so inherent in a rural culture that it's simply not in our control. Mm. It's still not in our control with all the technology we have and everything. And It's still a place where we are going to have to look above and beyond us, yeah. and uh, not have a faith in our abilities to do it all the time. So it, it keeps us grounded in that way. God knew what he was doing Amen. when he said those things. And you know, it, it came down, I mean, that, that, that spirit of Cain, I mean, it just went down through the millennia. I mean, look, the world flooded, and, and life arose again from, from, from Noah, but it still carried on. It was It was then the rise of Nimrod yeah whose name what meant what we shall rebel mm. it meant rebel against
0: what mm. it was rebel against that curse mm. and he's the first metal or however you would say that he's the he's the hunter of men the great hunter of men yeah in likely referring to the fact that he was a killer of men he was some kind of assassin of men yes and his his technology, the, the the explosion of technology, occurs around the construction of weaponry. It's really the first explosion of technology. You could say that cities themselves are a, are the first explosion of technology, but but really, the metallurgist only emerge in the creation of weapons of war. The forger of weapons of warfare. That's the beginning of this technology. I mean,
1: how much. Let's look at it. How much technology has given us today? How much of its origins mm. are in are in that very thing? Warfare. In, technology, in warfare. Yeah. I mean GPS or, mm. I mean just the list goes on. Nuclear the, power. Nuclear power. The computer. The computer. The microchip. I mean, so much. And so, so you can see this thread woven through it, but getting. Ever more global, ever bigger, mm. down through the millennium. and until today, when we're we're approaching this incredibly fast-moving changes. Mm. You know, and in a, in previous ages, it it took so long to bring about changes. You look at changes that slowly took centuries, but things happen to us now overnight, mm. literally. Mm. And um, that's what I think we're faced with: an ever increasing. A momentum to, mm-hmm. to this process.
0: I uh, got this quote from Karl Marx, who had something thoughtful to say. And really, it's, it's remarkable to see that the, the origins of modern liberalism, such as through Hegel and Marx, um, they, they are adopted by left and right alike, though at the beginning of this nation that wasn't the case. Jefferson and Adams equally saw the independent yeoman farmer as the paragon of the free man in the world. But that was in direct conflict. It's like the, the, the Aristotelian model of life was put forth the aristocracy as the, as the ultimate. And they were going to be freed from the drudgery of workaday necessities, and instead they called the farmers the idiots. So we have a, a stark contrast here. We have the the Greek model, the Aristotelian model, that views disengagement from necessities as freedom, and and the farmers who have to grow the food as idiots. Idiotes was their word yes. for farmer, and it, it's where we get the word idiot today. Um, and and yet. In stark contrast to that, Thomas Jefferson and Adams and the others, they saw the farmer, they saw the rural yeoman as the paragon of, of, of freedom yes. and private property and the ability to grow your food. And-, yeah, and, and really that
1: whole struggle, we don't realize in the American Revolution that was, that was the conflict mm-hmm. and that it, it really came over here from from Britain. I mean, so many early settlers who came were really escaping Europe and that whole dynamic which had taken hold of Europe, in which um, things like the, the enclosure movement and things against the yeoman farmers, the rise of industrialism, they really they fled to America to find a freedom and the land to live on away from that. And then when they saw it running them down by taxation, hmm for warfare right. after the uh, seven years war, which we call the French and Indian War. They they saw that and, and they understood that uh, it's tracking us down here in the new world and we're not gonna go for it, but it ultimately caught up with us. You know, right. that that fundamental battle, I mean, there were sides that, that uh, joined together to fight uh, British rule and, um, but after the war, they then turned on each other, uh, ha- the Hamiltonians versus the Jeffersonians, mm-hmm. and and uh, bringing the banking system. Hamilton was the first treasurer of the United States under Washington and uh, created the Bank of America, the right. first Bank of America, and really bringing a banking system to America and the economic system to America that would foster industrialism. Right. That was our early struggle, right yeah. up through uh, Jackson and the Second Bank of America. And, but exactly, that struggle followed them here into the wilderness. Yeah. They fled to the wilderness to get away from it, and it tracked them down. And, and
0: devoured, devoured them. them. Devoured yeah. them, ultimately. Yeah, And through a, a failure to embrace, in a sense, the hardship of life as a given from God, yes. and through a willingness to just ride along on the waves of progress as if progress were inherently good, regardless of where we were progressing toward.
1: Well we have an, a, a fundamental faith in that. Yeah. We have faith in the, in the goodness of progress and it's completely unfounded. I mean <laughs> I mean the unintended consequence take something like antibiotics or, or GMO right. crops today right. and uh, they are creating havoc. With agriculture, and I mean, there's other countries who have a whole lot more sense than we do about these things, like GMO products. They've outlawed it. <laughs> yeah. Why? Why are we? Why do we have such an incredible faith in technology, yeah. especially in America, where yeah. so much of it rises from? Yeah. Why is that? What is there in us that that it just blindly? It's as if you know, like the Luddites, you're you're condemned if you, you if you. Uh, they first rebelled against the uh, the knitting mills in, in Britain because all of knitting was in home workshops right. in Britain. And then the rise of the machinery and factories, they rebelled against it because it was destroying their way of life. And that's still going on very much. And, hmm. you know, it's become quieter and quieter, I think, as it, as it as it's just dominated all of culture. It's dominated all of agriculture. Yeah. It's dumb. And where are we headed with this thing? Yeah. Like, where is this going to take us? Right. And is there any solution to it? Mm. Is there any countering of this globalization and what it's going to do? You know, we see today—I mean, very fast happenings uh, globally and, and power. And, and uh, you know, whenever whenever a country arises that, that morphs from a early society. An economy affects it. It's ultimately, we know, going to need a polity to yeah. protect it. And that's where we are right. in these large countries. And what's the root of the word polity but polimos? Warfare. War. Yeah. Sure enough, we wage wars over economy.
0: Now. Right. Yeah. I, was, uh, I got this quote from Alistair McIntyre, And he says, one of the key moments in the creation of modernity occurs when production moves outside the household. So long as productive work occurs within the structure of households, it is easy and right to understand that work as part of the sustaining of the community of the household and of those wider forms of community which the household in turn sustains. As and to the extent that work moves Outside the household and is put to the service of impersonal capital, this banking system, the realm of work tends to become separated from everything. But the service of biological survival and the reproduction of the labor force on the one hand and that of institutionalized acquisitiveness on the other hand, the plenexia a vice in the Aristotelian scheme is now the driving force of modern productive work. I think if I'm pronouncing that right, the plenexia means the the unbridled lust for greed or wealth. It's now the driving force. And what he's saying here is that only when work was centered around human relationships in the home, did it have this dignified value. Now it's simply one of many commodities to be traded. Now it's, it's it, it, to lose your job, to gain your job. You're at the mercy of the rise of capital in all of its forms. We are, but
1: we are going to have to understand these things. If we are going to find our way out of them or ever preserve a culture that is, that is, is going to be able to counter that, we're going to have to realize how we mm-hmm. got here in the first place. Mm-hmm. How did we get here? We're speaking about now how we got here. And in order to get out in intentional communities, we're going to have to make intentional decisions about these things and hold on on to them. You know, it's a complete inability of culture today, societies, governments, to put any kind of a restraint on technology. Right. We just, it's like we're unable to do it. Right. They are unable to do it. but. We have to see these things for what they are, where they came from, what the dynamics are. We have to see, like you said, through the myths, yeah, and we are going to have to make decisions, intentional decisions about life, about families, about work. yeah we are going to have to make intentional decisions if we are going to preserve a a culture, a Christian culture we're going to have to
0: The modern current contemporary left um, espouses this. A utopian world where we're going to have a universal basic income, UBI, and we're going to have everybody's going to have housing, and everybody's going to have health care, and it's it's this world where we will at last be freed from necessities. And I find it deeply ironic, ironic, and and partly not that there is such a linkage in the uh, aristocracy, the, the 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 aristocracy started by Aristotle. And the, the the view of the modern left, started really by Hegel and then uh, Karl Marx. Marx said, the realm of freedom actually begins only where labor, which is determined by necessity and mundane mundane considerations, ceases. Yes. So he says, Your freedom doesn't start until your necessities are gone. That's Marxism. The quote goes on. It's it's quite Fascinating, but in the interest of time, you know th- this is this is the this is what's being put forth by um, many branches presently of of uh, political thought. Uh, UBI, universal basic income, has gained notable supporters such as Tim barners Lee, the founder of the World Wide Web, Pope Francis uh, of the Catholic Church, prominent figures. Um, like keith ellison former chair of the dnc jack dorsey founder of twitter mark zuckerberg bill gates tim cook sam altman founder of OpenAI, all of these that i just ma- mentioned influencers and uh you know forerunners of of the new modern left they're all pushing this this right to universal basic income and all, a lot of it comes in the name of rights Right to this and right to that and right to this. And you got to ask yourself, Mm -hmm. if we ever do achieve that, isn't this the ultimate rebellion that says, no, sin did not curse the world. See, we fixed that. No, we won't earn our bread by the sweat of our brow. See, we can be back in the garden of our own making. Yes, it is. That's the
1: direct connection. It's creepy in those. It is very much, and but we are on the uh, we are on the very verge of that with that kind of talk. Yeah. And so, what do we do about it? Yeah. What kind of decisions do we have to make for our lifestyles, for our families, that are going to counter that? It's got to be very conscious decisions that are going to cost us something. Yeah. Where are we going to live? Who are we going to be associated with? Who are our relationships with? Uh,
0: are we going to participate in that kind of an economy? Yeah. And are we going to willingly, consciously, collaboratively choose yes. a harder life? Yes. I mean, that's that's ultimately the question. Is there a blessing in the hardship? Yes. Is all a hardship to be avoided? And if so, at what cost? Exactly. You know, I think of my dad pioneering the idea that as a community, we farm with horses. He never suggested that that was the most efficient way to generate the most amount of produce. That wasn't the idea. No. He, he said we weren't trying to raise cash crops, we were trying to raise families. And he said, he, he had a rubric that he used. He said that we had to participate in the essentials of life. There, there needs to be a place for, for, for economy, there needs to be a place for technology. But he said, don't let technology be a buffer between you and the blessings God would give you by interacting with nature directly. And those essentials being life,
1: where you're born, <laughs> how you're born. You're born in a family are you born in a, or you're born in a technological setting. I mean, uh, death. Mm. You can die at home. Mm. Uh, our food, mm. our education, our work, the hmm. essentials of life. Can we bring them home? He taught us so much about that, about bringing home these hmm. essentials of life. What is essential from, but Essa, hmm. meaning the very being? It means being, the being of life.
0: Hmm. Hmm. I got this quote from Aaron Bastani. He's a current British socialist that I had never heard of, but he says, fully automated luxury, communism began with Karl Marx. Now, over 150 years later, an opulent post-work society is more possible than ever before.
1: A post-work society. That's it. I mean, if we can't see the contradiction
0: in that possibility, we... We're confused. We're confused. And we have to look at what's happened to the family. It's like, uh, Thomas Sowell, uh, who, who, um, who is a brilliant economist and really philosopher uh, of the African-American community. He, uh, he has taken some pretty hard stances and looks at the influence of aid, the influence of welfare and support from government on the African-American community. And it's a travesty to look at statistically, and I'm not going to, purport to quote his statistics like he can off the top of his head. But tragically, if you look at the African-American community before the advent of welfare, you see that socially they are on a par with their Anglo counterparts across the board. Yes. They don't have any measurable difference in out-of-wedlock births, in divorce rates, in graduation rates. It's all in housing and, and homelessness. They're all right there. Some places the black community is ahead. Some places they're a point behind, but it's all right there in the margin of error. And then beginning with the civil rights legislation, which we celebrate in terms of giving equal rights to all people, that's a good thing. But it was combined with this welfare system. The great society. That's it. Beginning at that point in 64, there is a precipitous decline. And it doesn't stop, it doesn't even hiccup in its terrible collapse until uh, 1994, when there's the first reform in welfare. And when they first made it 30 years after the Great Society, when they first made it a little harder to get welfare, immediately the, the social metrics, the social markers of the black community started improving. So there's an inverse corollary. The more help they get, the more trouble they're in. And it's not unique to the black community. It's whoever is in that category of receiving aid from the government on that level. It's like to steal their sense of duty and self-determination and responsibility is to steal their dignity and their purpose. And it's happening at a speed
1: that is just incredible what's going on due to technology. And And uh, it's we we
0: have to do something, we have to act now to counter these things. Yeah. And we're not going to be able to do it as individuals or even families. We're going to have to do it as the church. Cooperatively. I thought of this, maybe I'll leave our audience with this quote from Jesus. Uh, It's, see, I, I, I skipped over it in the first one, but I want to read it verbatim. Jesus says the kings of the Gentiles have absolute power and lord it over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. Yes. And this is a concept that is hard to get your mind around unless you see what we're talking about here. That he's saying those who are exerting total totalitarian authority over their subjects are actually called the benefactors it is it is when we are willing to turn to the government as yahweh el shaddai our provider that he has total authority or it the government has total authority over us yes exactly <laughs> that's how we've gotten here amen well thank you thank you for joining us